Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Tonight's scripture reading will come from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 16, 16 through 23. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Thoughts of wise. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Good evening, church. Good to see every one of you here tonight. Um, I hope that uh, the rain doesn't put you to sleep over the next uh, few minutes, but if it does, it's better to come to church and fall asleep than it is to fall asleep and not come to church, right? (laughs) All right. We are picking up where we left off two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, rather, in our series through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And um, the last uh, text, uh, I didn't finish the text entirely that I wanted to preach through on that Sunday night, but just to remind us of the context, first of all, verses 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writes, do you not know that you are God's temple? Remember the you here is plural. He's speaking to the church. Y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you or God's spirit dwells in y'all. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now remember what's going on in the context of the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians are some issues that had arisen because of leadership in the church at Corinth. And there were, there were some folks that were wanting a bigger position than belonged to them in Christ. And many of the brethren were clamoring after different ones of the, of the well-known and capable and famous teachers of the Word of God in that period of time. So some said that they were, they were of the, the, the group that that followed Apollos. And some said, well, I'm of the, I'm of the group of Christians that really uh, highlights what Peter's doing, Cephas, and I, I follow Cephas. Others said Paul and Christ and what have you. And Paul, of course, is dealing with that over the course of this text. And here's a warning in the midst of it to, to recognize that if you decide to exercise your gifts and calling that the Lord has given you in Christ in a way that actually hurts or destroys the community of believers, then you need to be afraid of the judgment of God yourself. 
And this is this warning right in the middle of this context. And, and so uh, we talked about that three weeks ago, and I'm not going to revisit that any further except to say that that's the immediate context of what now follows that I want to discuss for the few minutes tonight, verses 18 through 23. So Paul picks up with this phrase, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. This has been one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible because it's something that's been a part of my spiritual development now easily for the quarter century of my life that I've been pursuing uh, being active in ministry, vocational ministry. And it's a humbling passage. Now, first of all, we need to recognize that, uh, that this is attached to the context of what Paul is doing in this letter and that its immediate meaning is, is applying to the brothers there in the, in the ancient city of Corinth that are exalting themselves into these positions of grandeur. Like there are these great exalted teachers above in quality, above in spirituality, above in wisdom, all these other teachers around there and, and folks saying, you should follow me. And, and, and the folks in the church of Corinth, well, they'd grown up in the world just the same way that we have. We have, and had learned how the world works, and they were bringing many of the ideas as to how things work in the world into the church, such as a hierarchical approach to leadership. Now, there is a certain sense in which there is a hierarchy in leadership in the church. You know, 1 Corinthians 11 brings this out. The end of our passage tonight sort of implies it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But certainly, God the Father is the authority over all. Christ belongs to Him, and God has given all authority to Christ so that Christ rules in the name of God the Father. God the Father has given Christ the authority to send the Holy Spirit, who is the person of the Godhead that fills the church individually and collectively in order that His will uh, should be done. And uh, so, therefore, there is, a, there is a hierarchy, in a sense, in the way that the Godhead functions. Uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both subject to God the Father, freely so. And in the church, through God the Father's authority, Jesus' word, and the Holy Spirit's action, God has set up the church so that there is a plurality of elderships that oversee every flock. And the Bible is very clear that the elders of the local church underneath the authority of the word are, in fact, in positions of leadership and have authority in the local church. And that is a fact. But it's not based upon the same principles or ideals that that leadership is often decided on or, or viewed as in the world around us because the general idea in the world is that people are in positions of leadership because they are superior to those that they're leading. Uh, one of the preachers that had a great influence on me growing up, Brother David Farr, once said in one of his sermons preaching about the eldership, he said, my elders are my superiors, but they are not superior to me. Kind of a bold statement, right? But it is 100% Bible truth. Our three elders are not superior to me as men of God. Their quality is not greater than mine. Their quality is not greater than yours. That's not why they're in positions of leadership. They haven't been put into positions of leadership because they are spiritually superior to everyone else in the church. They've been put into their positions of leadership because they've met some qualities or some qualifications that enable them to be examples to the flock of what all of us are supposed to be striving for. And in that position as examples to the flock, they have a right to shepherd, to rule is a word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in the church. But it is not to be seen as this hierarchical sort of thing in which those who are in higher positions have greater privilege. Those who are in higher positions have greater clout, greater acclaim, you know, all of these sorts of things, greater reward and that sort of thing. None of these things like that are true. 
And Paul is getting this point across in this passage. And he's trying to get these folks that listen, if you think you're wise because you understand how things work in the world, if you think you're wise because you know how the Greek philosophers organize themselves, you think you're wise because you know how the, uh, the Jewish clergy, the Levitical priesthood organizes itself, and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to bring that stuff into the church. Folks do this all the time. Paul is giving you a warning in this context. Whoa, 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 whoa. You think you're wise. If you want to be able to, to function in the church in a way that pleases Christ and that builds and never destroys, that only produces growth and never poisons the well that the brethren drink from, then you need to start from ground zero. You need to forget everything that you think that you've learned from the world because the world does not know God. And the world doesn't know His will. The world obviously doesn't know how to order itself in a way that is lastingly productive and successful because there is no civilization since the dawn of time that has lasted more than a few hundred years without radical change because of the sins and errors of the people of that civilization. There ain't nothing going to change in that regard until Christ comes again. So if you think you've got a great education and that enables you to make a good living, good, and that's great. But that does not mean what you've learned from the world translates into how life is supposed to function in the church. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is absolutely a counterculture. A counterculture to any culture that is in the world. We are called to be separate from the world, holy with regard to the world. We do not organize ourselves the way that the world organizes itself. And we do not have respect for the principles that the world uses to exalt leaders into these positions where they dominate and control the people that are under their power. And eldership in the church is not supposed to be that way. And so the, the New Testament is very, very clear on that. And so this is kind of what Paul has in mind with this statement in the immediate context. But it has a broader application. Because regardless of what subject we may be talking about, whether it's church leadership and organization, or whether it's anything in, in life that is spiritual or moral. What do you know, brother? What do you know, sister? You only know what you've been told. You haven't lived long enough to have any great wisdom that's your own. And certainly nobody living on this earth today has had the opportunity to ascend into heaven and have a conversation with God and to see what things are like on the other side. We're blind to all of that. We know what we know about that because of faith, not because of sight. We know because of what the Word of God has said. And so it is wise, if you would be wise, to recognize that you're not wise. And that may seem like a paradox or contradiction in terms, but it is not. The wisest man in the world is the man who has the keenest sense of his own foolishness. The wisest woman in the world is the woman that is most keenly in tune with the fact that she is not wise on her own and that there is no wisdom except that which comes from God. And we learn it from his word and through his providence as he works with us in our attempts to put that word into practice. And that's where wisdom comes from and it does not come from any other places. And so what each of us need to do is at some point in our lives we need to quit thinking so highly of ourselves and our thought processes and we need to get down on our knees and say, God, I confess to you that I do not know anything about how to live right or succeed at life and I am just throwing myself at your feet and humbling myself before you so that you will teach me how to think. And if you'll teach me how to think, then I'll know what to say and then I'll know what to do. And that is the right response of every single man, woman, and child alive to God. Amen?
it's true. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. And here comes something beautiful. The rest of this passage is so good. There was no way that I was going to, three weeks ago, rush through it in order to finish that sermon in the course of a couple of minutes. This is good stuff, y'all. Really beautiful stuff. Paul says, for. For. Ultimately, why shouldn't I boast in men? Why shouldn't I say I'm a follower of Apollos? Why is it foolish to say that I'm a follower of Cephas or of Paul or, or even Christ in the way that they were saying this in this sectarian way? But why should I not do that? Why is that foolishness for? Paul gives a reason for. Do you see what he says? All things are yours. Plural again. Yours, the whole church. All of you saints in the city of Corinth, and through applying this word to us, all of us who are members of the Lord's body here at Laverne, all things belong to us, brothers and sisters. Everything belongs to us. Do you recognize that that is true? I realize that there's probably several that are, I'm not exactly sure how that works. Well, let's develop this a little more. But he goes on to say in verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, you think that's enough? No, he says, no. Or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. You see how Paul is making sure that we're, we're grasping the huge thing that by the Holy Spirit he is saying here? He's not mincing words about it. He's using so many words here to help us understand the scope and breadth of this beautiful truth that he is revealing to us by the Holy Spirit in this passage. He concludes, all are yours. It's all yours. And you're Christ's. And Christ is God's. You see, the, the deep misunderstanding that our brethren in the ancient city of Corinth had in trying to order the church the way that the world orders its various social structures... Well, it was not so much that the people were apostate. They weren't apostate. They weren't rebelling against God. It wasn't even that they had committed such a horrible breach of doctrine that, that Paul was just, just royally rebuking them and raking them over the coals. That wasn't, that's not what was going on. What, what's going on here? And, and Paul is bringing this out in this context that he's saying to our ancient brothers and sisters there is that you have sold yourself short. You have failed to understand what a privilege it is to be a Christian. Any Christian. Every Christian. You have failed to realize that what God is doing in you and through you and for you. And where this thing that you've become a part of because of the sacrifice of Christ is leading. You failed to realize how huge and cosmic of a thing this is that God is doing. And therefore you're selling yourself short. And you're being satisfied with crumbs when you could have a feast. That's what we all tend to do who are people of faith. We tend to listen to the lies of Satan who tells us that we're just a bunch of unworthy, just a, a bunch of weak, a bunch of beggarly sort of people. We don't deserve the crumbs that we eat. We 
begin to think that, well, maybe God doesn't really love us all that much at all. Or maybe even if he does, we begin to think, well, after all, this life is just about a test. And so I ought to expect in life that bad things are going to happen to me and nothing, you know, really is going to go my way. And I'm just going to skip from trial to trial to trial. And the whole role of being a human being in this fallen world of serving Christ is just to suffer along with the apostles, the good soldier of Christ Jesus. And I'm quoting scripture to tell you that there are times in which suffering is the right pathway for servants of the Lord. But even when we're, when we're forced because of the circumstances of life in a fallen world to go through periods of darkness and shadow and trial, we've got to recognize how great a thing it is that God is doing for us through those trials. He means exactly what he says in this context. It's all yours. You have power over everything. You realize that the church decides who will be the president of the United States every four years? You can argue that point with me if you want to. But I'm just going to tell you everything is yours. Everything is. Paul, Paulo, Cephas. The world is yours, brothers. The world is yours, sisters. Life is yours. It belongs to you. It doesn't belong to the world. It's a no votes elect the president. Sure they do. You know what has more power than all the votes in the world? The prayers of the church to whom God has given everything. If we get bad leaders in the nation, not necessarily our fault, but maybe we could pray about it a little more. Maybe we could fast about it if we were really concerned. And if we really as a church said, Lord, this is really the direction we want society to go in order to enable us to do a better job of reaching the lost in this culture, do you think God is not going to respond to that prayer? I'm, I'm just asking you a question to challenge how big you think your God is. I, I'm asking this question to ask you how much trust you have in his omnipotence to answer your prayers. Not just yours individually. This passage is about the y'all. It's about the y'all. Why is the church generation after generation forced to deal with all kinds of unhappy circumstances in a miserable, sinful world? Maybe it's because of our division. Maybe it's because we can't get the y'all together. Because even within the body of Christ, it's just like the folks in ancient Corinth. It's us versus them. It's our sect versus that. It's we're right and you're wrong. We're the ones that are serving Jesus and you're failing. And we fight amongst ourselves to no end while the world dies and goes to hell. All in the midst of a context in which God has given us the power to set the way that this world is going to go. And that's the truth. We just so seldomly use it. Not because we're rebels any more than our ancient brethren at Corinth were. It's because we're weak. It's because we've been abused by Satan. We've been beaten up. And we've taught ourselves to live with less. Brothers and sisters, I ain't talking about no health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I'm talking about spiritual power and strength to affect the very culture that we are living in as lights in the world. If Jesus says, brothers and sisters, that we are the lights of the world, do you think that we cannot shine into the darkness and cause it to flee? If God gives us the blessing and power to be the light of the world, do you think our batteries are running, running out in this flashlight of gospel truth that we've got? Do we think so lowly of the power of God? 
just asking questions, hoping that we will think. Two quotes, Ben Witherington III, about this passage. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the individual believer and in the church as a whole is a powerful reminder of the divine presence and power that is available to us, of the power that is available to us. Brothers and sisters, the church at Corinth was so wrong because they didn't realize that they all together as one body of believers in Christ were in fact the very temple of God, the place where he dwells. God's power is focused upon the church, exercised through the ministry of the church. Brothers and sisters, we've got to start dreaming bigger things and asking for bigger blessings. I love that just last Wednesday we got together and prayed for this country, and I know it's going to have an effect. I don't know what it's going to be. But if things in this country are as bad as we know they are, maybe we need to do that once a month rather than once a year. It's just a thought. Another quote from Timothy Keller, he says the gospel is this. I love this quote. The gospel is this, in a manner of speaking. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. In other words, you're worse than you think you are in the eyes of God. If you could see yourself as the holy and perfect God sees you, you would realize just what a broken mess you really are. Far worse than you think. Far lower than you think. Far more messed up than you think. That's not the end of the gospel there. That's just what occasions the gospel. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I realize that sinners are ultimately worthless if they continue to embrace their sin. Yeah, we know that's true. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And my brothers and sisters, that speaks to the enormous value even of sinners made in the likeness of God. God loves his sons and daughters and he stands ready to act on our behalf if we will simply turn to him in faith. And man, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and there's so much power that has been made available to us. And so I'm concluding our thoughts tonight by simply drawing our attention to the generosity of God. And, and to get you to understand what Paul is saying in this context, if you don't already, and that is this fact, no one can give more than his whole self. You remember we've talked about just recently in our sermons that Jesus telling us what the greatest love is. No one has greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. Give his life for his friends. The principle is you, if you can give away whatever you want. You can be like Zacchaeus and give half your goods to the poor. And that's a wonderful work for God like the rich young ruler ought to have been, called by Jesus to give it all away, to sell it all and give it to the poor and come follow Jesus. He was inviting him to give all that he had. But ultimately, Jesus has given his all even to the point of death. And because of that, God has given us his very Holy Spirit. And the point that Paul is making in this context is, brothers and sisters, let us be lifted up and encouraged let us be taught and exalted. Let us realize the power that God has given us collectively, not individually, but collectively as the whole body of believers. Let us seize upon the power that God has given us by causing his Holy Spirit to live among us, by recognizing that God has given us his very self. And if God has given us his very self, 
then he's given us everything that he owns. He's given us everything he owns. And he owns Paul. And he owns Apollos. And he owns Cephas. You know, God the Father even owns Jesus Christ, his son. And he owns you. And he owns me. And he owns everything that we possess. He owns all that we dream of possessing. And he owns this world and everything and everyone in it. And he has given himself to us. And that is a truth that I think is probably too big for any of us individually to really wrap our minds around. But I just wonder and dream of what we might can do collectively if we apply the truth of this text into, to the way that we live our lives as the church. Just a couple of parallel passages to hopefully make this even clearer before we conclude. Matthew 6, verses 25 through 33. You'll know part of this passage for sure. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But listen to verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. And worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is another way of saying this is just the truth that Paul is drawing from in this context. And, and in fact, the, the bigger picture of it, God actually allowed Paul to reveal. Jesus lays the groundwork here in this passage in telling us, that, listen, if you seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness, if your number one purpose in life is to serve God and do his will, you're rich. You are rich. There's nothing that you will ever need Nothing that will not be supplied to you. And if you can't accept that, well, Jesus has already said lovingly, but truthfully, oh, ye of little faith. Because the problem is not God, the problem is unbelief on our part. I don't even mean not believing in God. I don't mean not believing in Jesus. I mean people that believe in God, that believe in Jesus, but don't believe that he really means what he has promised to us in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I know sometimes that is us. We believe in God. We believe in the truth of the gospel. We believe in the plan of salvation. We believe in the ultimate hope of eternal life with God in heaven. And we can believe all of those big things that, frankly, 
I believe are even bigger than the little things that God is talking about. What's bigger, being resurrected from the dead and living in eternal glory in heaven or just owning the earth? Make sense? We walk by faith, not by sight. Luke 11, 5 through 13. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will they give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Holy Spirit is God. God offers you his very self. That's what God offers. And I just know we can't fully understand that because I don't. But I'm beginning to get it little by little. And I hope that we together as a church can really, really begin to trust that God has given us the whole world and all the power in it that we need to influence it for Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, if he's given us his whole self, if he's given us his whole self, why should it be thought as such a great thing to ask? Amen? This evening, if you need to respond to the invitation of the gospel, this opportunity is yours. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He will save you. He will bless you. He's already given himself for you on the cross. If you will come to him and give yourself to him in faith, he will give you the whole of the Godhead and everything that God owns. That's the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make the decision to turn from your sins. Put your faith in Jesus. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll be added to the church. If you're a baptized believer that needs prayers, front pews are open. Come as we together stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.